Good morning. It is so good to be able to gather with you uh, once again, virtually, online here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. We are excited that you have joined us this morning. I want to echo what Pastor Ted said earlier and thank all of you for joining us today. If this is uh, for you a return visit, we, we thank you for coming back and joining us with your family. But if this is your first time joining us today online, I especially want to thank you and hope that you will do exactly as Ted asked, and that is to uh, take a moment before you log off today to fill in one of those information cards that, that are available for you digitally there and that you would fill that in and submit it. We would love to have a record of your attendance. We'd love to be able to communicate with you. And so we hope that you will take time to do that today. If you've got your Bibles with you there in your homes, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter. John chapter 13. We're going to begin a new series of sermons uh, today, right in the middle of a pandemic, we're going to begin a new sermon series. And uh, it's a sermon series that I have entitled Lessons from the Upper Room. And, and in this series, the Lord willing, we're going to be looking at, verse, at chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the Gospel of John. And this is a section of Scripture in which John records for us the final intimate moments of fellowship that Jesus had with His disciples prior to his arrest and crucifixion. In these chapters, we will witness the true heart of Jesus as displayed through his actions and through his teaching and also through his heartfelt prayer recorded for us in chapter 17. And I think it's worth noting that, that though the book of John is, is 21 chapters long, he devotes five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, to describe what happened over the course of approximately five hours the night that Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room just prior to him being crucified. The density of the theological truth, along with the, the beautiful display of Jesus' love for his disciples that is contained within these five chapters has caused many to refer to these chapters as the holy of holies of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce has said that nowhere in the entire Bible does the child of God feel that he or she is walking on more holy ground than right here. John MacArthur, he writes that in these chapters, Jesus was essentially giving his disciples and consequently all believers throughout history his last will and testament. This is Christ's legacy, he writes. And his words are intimate, personal, and full of profound love for those he calls his own. You know, I can't think of a better time, quite frankly, than right now in, in light of everything that, that we've lost and everything that's been taken away from us in some respects, things that have been delayed, things that we may never see again. I cannot think of anything in light of what we're experiencing that would be better for us than to remind ourselves of the unfailing, everlasting, never changing, always secure love of God that he has for us. And that's why I'm truly excited about being able to study this section of Scripture with you. Now, these chapters, chapters 13 through 17, are often referred to as the farewell discourse. But I want you to notice that before the discourse begins, there's action. And that's what I want us to read about this morning. Begin reading with me in John chapter 13, verse 1. The Word of God says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, 
that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for this day. It's a beautiful day outside. Uh, this, this area in which we are gathered right now and in this part of Georgia is just, just blessed with, with the beautiful weather that you have bestowed upon us. And I'm thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for the fact that we have this place, the place that we can come to right now that's still very different from, from how it's been in the past. Father, I am grateful that you've given us the opportunity to be able to gather together right now virtually across not just our area here in Buford, but literally all over this country and, and perhaps even all over the world. To be able to open your scriptures and to be able to read them and to be able to, to clearly delve into the deep waters of the gospel, I pray that that would happen today. And I pray that in the course of our time together this morning that you would allow your Holy Spirit to bring conviction into our hearts, but also to bring assurance into our hearts of the great love that you have for us. Accomplish those things for our good and ultimately for your glory. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. I love the way that, that D.A. Carson opens his book devoted to the farewell discourse. Uh, from a very broad perspective, as he examines the gospel of John, he, he says that it proved for him to be a lesson in humility. He says, John is simple enough for a child to read and, and complex enough to tax the mental powers of the greatest minds. He quotes Leon Morris, who, who says that the gospel of John is like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. 
Carson goes on to say, he says, I'm not an elephant, but I have become aware of the many places where I am beyond my depth. And I certainly echo his sentiment, particularly as we consider the passage before us this morning. See, I'm not sure that in full disclosure that I can do much more today than to simply skim the surface of the depths of all that is contained in our text this morning. But I hope that it will encourage you the way that it has encouraged me as we wade into these waters together. By way of explanation, I have provided for you an outline that is primarily based upon two questions that this text really brings out for us to to search the answers for. In fact, those questions will form the major points of the outline and of the the way that I work through this text today. And then the answers will serve as the secondary uh, points that we will look at. The first main point, the first question that I want us to consider from this text today is this. What did Jesus know? Based upon what John tells us, what do we learn that Jesus knew and that he was convinced of in this passage? Well, as I've mentioned, John 13 begins with with Jesus and his disciples assembled together in the upper room. And they are they're there to celebrate the Passover meal together. Now, with this as the setting, John makes sure that we recognize that there are some key things that Jesus knows. Some, some key important issues that he is aware of. In fact, the first three verses of our text list those things for us. And I want to just give them to you. They'll come fairly rapidly, but, but notice what we see. If we ask the question, what did Jesus know? Well, the first thing that Jesus knew was that he knew his hour had come. His hour had come. This is significant because three separate times earlier in John's gospel, it is specifically noted that Jesus' hour had not yet come. You can find these if you want to write them down and reference them later in chapter 2, verse 4, in chapter 7, verse 30, and in chapter 8, verse 20. All three of those moments describe Jesus being let to know that his hour had not yet come. But on just the previous chapter, in chapter 12, verse 23, we read that as Jesus was about to go into the upper room with his disciples, he says this, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In other words, Jesus recognized that his earthly ministry was nearly complete and it was now time for him to accomplish that for which he had been sent. Warren Wearsby, he puts it this way. He says, the time has come for him to be glorified by his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So the first thing to recognize that Jesus knew was that his hour had come, which leads us to the next thing that he knew. He knew that his departure was near. His departure was near. You see, with his eye toward his ascension, having finished his work here on earth, Jesus knew that he would soon leave this world and he would return to the Father who had sent him. So so Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that his departure was near. Now look with me in verse 3 because there we see a third thing that he knew. He knew that he had been given divine authority. He had been given divine authority. Jesus tells us that, John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. This is a parallel to what he had already said back in John chapter 3, verse 35, where Jesus there says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. It's, it's, it's the same thing that Jesus would say just before he ascended back to heaven in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Just prior to giving the, the Great Commission, Jesus said this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
So, so when Jesus gathers with his disciples here in the upper room, just prior to him being crucified on the cross, Jesus knows that he has been endowed with power from on high, with divine authority. Furthermore, notice that he also knew where he had come from. That's the next answer that we find from this text. He knew he had a divine origin. Specifically, John says that Jesus knew he had come from God. In other words, Jesus knew exactly what John wrote about at the very beginning of his gospel. In the very first verses of the gospel of John, we read this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Jesus knew that too. So Jesus knew where He came from, He knew where He was going, and He knew that He was going back to God. He knew that His death was coming, but He also knew that He would rise again and that He would ascend back to the Father to the glory of his Father. In fact, Jesus says of himself in Luke chapter 22, verse 69, that he would be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In other words, he knew, as you'll see there on your outline, he knew that he would receive future glory. He knew that he would receive future glory. So if we just recap briefly for a moment, we see what John tells us that, that Jesus knew. He reveals what Jesus knew just hours before he would be crucified. He knew that his hour had come, that his death and burial would, were imminent. He also knew that his resurrection and ascension were near. He knew that his divine departure from earth was about to occur. He knew that the divine authority and the power that God the Father had given to him and he knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going and he knew the glory that would be his when he got there. All of these things Jesus knew as he gathered with his disciples. But there's one more thing that we need to know that Jesus knew. According to verse 2, we learn this. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew Judas would betray him. John tells us in that verse that the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. We're not told precisely when that had happened, only that it had occurred prior to this moment. And then according to verse 11 that we read this morning, John tells us that Jesus himself knew who would, be, who would betray him. From verses 18 all the way through verse 30 of John chapter 13, Jesus goes on to identify specifically that it is Judas who is his betrayer and he even sends Judas out from the upper room to go and to do what he had already determined in his heart that he would do. Now, it's when you put all of this information together, all of this that Jesus knew, when you take into consideration everything that Jesus knew about himself, and then when you consider all that Jesus knew about Judas, well, then an incredible scenario really presents itself. It's one that's quite difficult to even get our minds around, honestly. You see, in light of all that Jesus knew and in all that he, was, he was, had knowledge of there, well, as, as, as Carson suggests, we might expect that with such power and status at his disposal, that Jesus would defeat the devil in an immediate flashy confrontation and devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Now, honestly, that makes sense to me. Quite frankly, I think if, I, if it were my prerogative and I was in that situation, that's exactly what I would do. 
I would would use the divinely given authority that had been placed into my hands in order to obliterate my enemy and show everyone else who was boss. But not Jesus. As we will see momentarily, Jesus used his hands in a completely different way. But right here, we must move from asking what Jesus knew to asking the next question that this text makes us ponder this morning. You see, in light of what Jesus knew, we need to ask secondly, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Now, as was the case with the first question, so we find here that there are multiple answers revealed to us in this text. And so the first answer that we find to this, to this question, what did Jesus do, is embedded there at the end of verse 1. Notice there we read that in light of the fact that Jesus knew his hour had come and that his time of departure was at hand, John tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So when we ask, what did Jesus do? Well, we begin with this answer. He loved them utterly. He loved his disciples utterly. Now, what does that mean? I mean, specifically, what does it mean when when John writes that Jesus loved them to the end? Well, certainly we realize that it means that he would love them to the end of his earthly life. As we've noted, it was the day before Jesus's death. In less than 24 hours, his body would be encased in a borrowed tomb. And after he had done that, he had would borne the awful weight of the guilt of the sins of the world upon himself, sins of which he was not guilty. And he would suffer ruthlessly, being nailed to a cross. And he was subjected to the full measure of God's wrath against humanity's sin. And as we've seen, Jesus knew this was coming. It did not surprise him. It did not overtake him unaware. He knew it was, it was looming, yet his knowledge of what was coming, did not deter him from pouring into his beloved disciples. He he could have remained singularly focused on what he was going to face, but he didn't. He loved them to the end. He loved them utterly. And that is especially important to consider in light of the knowledge that Jesus had. You see, in light of all that he knew about himself, in light of what he all, all he knew about Judas, but it wasn't just Judas that he knew information about. There were others gathered in that upper room with him. And what He knew what all they were going to do in the hours ahead. I think that helps us understand what it means when John says that Jesus loved them to the end. A.W. Pink notes this, that Jesus knew that Philip would misunderstand him. He knew that three of his disciples would sleep while he prayed and agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that Peter would deny him and that Thomas would doubt him and that all would forsake him, yet he loved them to the end. Such an understanding shows us the extent of Christ's love. He loved them utterly. And I believe that such a realization, quite frankly, should encourage us. I think we should be encouraged 
that just like his disciples, Jesus loves us to the end of our miserable failures. He loves us to the end of our wanderings and to the end of our backslidings. He loves us to the end of our unworthiness. He loves us to the end of our deepest need. Pink concludes, he says, the cross was before Jesus with all of its horror. The joy of returning to the Father was before him with all of its bliss. Yet neither the fearful prospect of woe nor the hope of unspeakable rest and gladness shook his love for his own. He loved them utterly. So that's the first answer we find to the question, what did Jesus do? But there's more. You see, filled with divine knowledge and with a heart of love, according to verse 4, John tells us that Jesus pushed himself away from the table and that he rose up and that he took off his outer garments and that he wrapped himself in a towel. And that towel would have been wrapped around his waist in such a way so that the longest portion of it would have hung down in front. And then we read that he went over and he took a pitcher that was filled with water and he poured that water into a basin. And then he took that basin and he began to move around the room and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. So the next answer that we find to the question, what did Jesus do, is this. He washed their feet. He washed their feet. Now, Before we move on from that, we we need to consider from a cultural perspective, we need to recognize why this was not such a shocking turn of events from one perspective, but then why it was so shocking from another. You see, everyone in that culture faced the same issue. Everyone traveled by foot. And when the weather was dry, your feet would become dirty and dusty from from traveling the, the roads And when it rained, a person's feet could become caked with mud. Either way, John MacArthur notes this, no pedestrian's feet could remain filth free. So at the entrance to every Jewish home was a large basin of water to wash visitors' feet. So we can say in one respect, there was nothing shocking about the custom of foot washing. The shocking part was that the feet were never washed by someone who was in authority, someone who had a position of rank. In fact, someone such a teacher such as Jesus. In fact, Carson states this, not even equals washed one another's feet. That was a job for servants and the servants with least seniority at that. Washing someone's feet was the unpleasant and miserable responsibility of lowest, the lowest ranking person on site. So while this action itself was common, the fact that Jesus, who according to verse 3, excuse me, according to verse 13, was considered by his disciples to be their teacher and their Lord. Well, the fact that he took up a basin and a towel to wash his disciples' feet? Well, that was anything but common. In fact, it would have been considered outrageous. And my guess is, as he began to to wash the feet of his disciples, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Probably the only sound that you would have heard would have been the dirty water dripping off of the feet of those disciples back into that basin. One by one, Jesus had moved to them and he 
had slipped off their sandals and he took up their dirty feet into his hands. The same hands into which had been given all divine authority. Those same hands now gently served his disciples by washing their feet. Now allow me, allow me to impress upon you once again the importance of what John has told us in the first three verses. You see, Jesus does what he does here in verses four and five, not because he's forgotten anything from the first three verses, but because of it. In fact, to quote Boyce again, we notice that it was not in forgetfulness of who he was and where he was going. And we can even add to that who was gathered with him around that table that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, but rather it was in full consciousness of it. It was not that he forgot that he was God and so he humbled himself. Rather, it was because he was God and he wished to act as God that he did it. You see, here here we see Jesus do what we've seen him do many, many times throughout Scripture. He goes the opposite of the way that we expect him to go. Repeatedly, Jesus had taught his disciples, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He taught them, he who is least among you is the one who will be great. He taught them, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself would be exalted. Yet his message and his teaching had still not penetrated their hearts. None of them had offered to wash Jesus' feet when they came into the upper room. And not a one of them had offered to wash any of the other disciples' feet. So knowing fully what he was doing, Jesus loved them utterly and he washed their feet. But there's still more that's revealed in this text. You see, Peter had sat there and he had watched what was going on and he was absolutely dumbfounded by what he saw taking place. He he was obviously not the first disciple that Jesus had, had come and removed his sandals and began to wash his feet. In fact, Jesus, as he came closer to Peter and he knelt down before him, Peter no doubt drew his feet back up underneath himself and he incredulously blurted out, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus calmly looked at Peter and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In other words, Jesus clearly communicated that what he was doing was not simply washing the feet of his disciples as an act of humility, but rather he was giving them a dramatic illustration of his entire earthly ministry. And that brings us to the next, the next answer to the question, what did Jesus do? The third one that you'll find there is this, he gave them a parable. He gave them a parable. You see, by washing their feet, Jesus was giving his disciples a foretaste. He was demonstrating a parable that depicted what he would do for them in an even greater sense on the cross. We come to realize this by the continued interaction that that occurs between Jesus and Peter. You see, Peter still cannot bear to think that his dirty feet will be washed by Jesus. So so he says to Jesus emphatically in verse 8, he says, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answers him, says, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part with me. Now, right here, I believe reading from Philippians chapter 2, 
will help solidify in our minds the parable that Jesus is demonstrating for his disciples. In fact, as I studied this passage, I I kept coming back again and again and again from John 13 to Philippians 2. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, when we compare John 13 to Philippians 2, we see that just as Jesus rose from the table here in the upper room and, 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 and to go and to serve these disciples by washing their feet, so in a far greater way, Did he rise from the glory of his throne and prior to his coming to this world? And just as he laid aside his garments to wear a towel, so Paul says he laid aside his glory to take upon himself the flesh of humanity. And even more specifically, to take upon himself the role of a servant. And just as he poured water into a basin to wash his disciples' feet, so in a few short hours, Jesus would pour out his own blood for the washing away of human sin through his atoning sacrifice. And it is that atoning sacrifice through his own blood that Jesus is alluding to here in verse 8. When Jesus says that unless Peter is washed by him, then Peter has no part with him, what he is saying is that Peter can have no fellowship with him. He can have no communion with him unless he has been washed clean by Jesus. In other words, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the only way that Peter or anyone else can ever be made right with God, the only way that there can ever be fellowship and friendship with him is if and only if such a person has been washed clean by the blood that Jesus shed for their sins on the cross. And certainly this was being demonstrated by Jesus as he washed the dirty feet of his disciple. But, but there's even more that's added to this same parable. There's, there's a nuance here that I think we need to consider. Because you see, having been presented with the absolute necessity of being washed by Jesus, Peter goes on to say, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, if, if being washed by you is what it takes to have fellowship with you, then, then give me a bath. Jesus corrects him and he says, he who is bathed, and notice that that verb is in the past tense. It represents completed action. He said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. As John MacArthur has put it, once your inner person has been bathed in redemption, you are clean. As far as the gift of eternal life and your righteousness standing before God are concerned, you do not need to seek the washing of regeneration repeatedly. It is a one-time irreversible work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when by faith you trust in what Jesus Christ accomplished for you on the cross by dying in your place to redeem you from your sins, that is a finished work that never needs to be repeated. However, You and I need to continually be washed clean of the dirt and the mud that attaches itself to us as we walk through this life. 
And it is right here that I believe that you and I who count ourselves to be believers, those of us who have trusted in Christ to be our Savior, have been washed clean by His blood, we must reckon with this passage. You see, our initial reaction to what Peter does may be to, to, to condemn him for his dullness. When he pulls his feet back from Jesus and, and refuses to allow Jesus to wash his feet, we may just think of him as just being dumb and dull and, and, and someone who completely goes against what Christ wants. But as A.W. Pink has cautioned, let us beware lest we be guilty of something more inexcusable than what we condemn in the apostle. You see, though Peter initially pulled his feet back from Jesus, he subsequently and very quickly changed his course. Is it, is it not sadly true of us that the opposite is very often the case? That we often say we will submit and yet we remain obstinately disobedient? Consider this in your own life. Consider how often the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, of the Word of God, has come upon you in a particular area or about a habitual sin in your life that needs to be washed clean, yet you have pushed that call away to cleansing. You've buried it under the continual load of daily activities and daily responsibilities or maybe even a, a cascade of, of selfish pursuits. And you've pushed that call toward cleansing away. Let me ask you, which is worse? To initially reject the call to be washed clean, but then to submit or to ignore the call and continue in a disobedient lifestyle? Brothers and sisters, this passage necessitates that we grapple, that we wrestle with that question and that we engage in self-evaluation. And the reason that is necessary is because not one of us can say that we have walked through a single day of our life without sin. As Pink has written, our daily contact with evil all around causes the dust of defilement to settle upon us so that the mirror of our conscience is dimmed and the spiritual affections of our hearts are dulled. Even when evil does not break out in open forms, we are conscious of much hidden wrong, of sins, of thought, of vile desires. And how real then, how deep is our daily need of putting our feet in the hands of Christ for cleansing that everything which hinders communion with him may be removed and that he may say of us, you are clean. Listen, to submit to Christ and to put our dirty feet into his hands is to adopt the same attitude as the psalmist had in Psalm 139 when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. When we do that, when the gracious and merciful conviction of God comes upon us through the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to us through His Word. When we repent of our sins and we repent of those things that He has shown to us, then we will be washed clean. And then we will know the truth of the Scriptures of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in this scene, we have a parable that is given to us of how through his atoning sacrifice, the Lord 
washes us clean of our guilt, of our sin, and once and for all. And we also have the demonstration of how we, who have been redeemed by His blood, must be cleansed continually by His grace and by His mercy as we walk through this world. Then finally, note that after Jesus finished speaking to Peter and after he had finished washing all of the other disciples' feet, he replaced the basin, he took off the towel, he put back on his outer garments and he went back to the head of the table and he sat down and he asked this question, do you know what I have done to you? It's the same question that we've been asking throughout this text. What did Jesus do? And then he answers for us the final answer. It's this, he set for them an example. He set for them an example. Notice what Jesus says again, beginning in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So what does this mean? Does it mean, as some have taken it, that we should make foot washing an ordinance and a sacrament of the church. I don't believe so. Rather, I believe that what Jesus has done here is that he has begun his lessons from the upper room. You see, through his demonstration of humility in washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus is clearly issuing a rebuke of the pride and of the the arrogance that each of those disciples had demonstrated toward each other. As I mentioned, all of these disciples were no doubt shocked by the fact that Jesus had knelt to wash their feet, yet not one of them had offered to wash his feet. And not one of them had offered to wash any of the feet of the other disciples. And furthermore, according to what we learn in Matthew and Mark, just a short time earlier before they entered into the upper room, these same disciples were arguing among themselves as to which one was greater than the other. They were jockeying for position as to which one would be able to sit at Jesus' right hand and which one would be able to sit at his left when he came into his kingdom. Their pride, their jockeying for position stands in stark contrast to the humility that is demonstrated by Jesus here in the upper room. So consequently, I don't believe that Jesus is saying do the same thing. In other words, washing one another's feet. He's not giving that as the example. Rather, what he is saying is treat one another in the same way that I have treated you. In other words, follow my example of humility. It goes right along with what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so then all of that brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Because the Lord Jesus loved us to the end by serving us through his self-sacrifice, our only hope is to receive his love and live a life of selfless service and purposeful sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. You know, as I mentioned to you at the outset, of this study today, I believe that all we've done is is really skim the surface of the depths of this passage. Time, Time does not permit us to wade any deeper into it this morning, though we could. 
However, this is what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to encourage you to go back and I want you to read it again. And I want you to ponder it. And I want you to chew on it. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through it. Talk about it among your family over the lunch table today or at some other appointed time that you guys set aside. And as you do that, perhaps you could begin to ask yourself the very same questions that bubble out of this text. You can begin asking yourself, what do I know? Or maybe rephrase it this way. What do I believe? And then you can follow it up with the the second question. What will I do? Or how will I respond based upon what I believe, based upon what I know? First of all, the question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe, as this passage clearly tells us, that he has been one with God the Father through the annals of history? Do you believe that he came to earth as a man? Not just any man, but as the suffering servant who went to Calvary's cross to bear the full weight of humanity's sin. Do you believe that Christ died for you in your place for your benefit in order to pardon you from your guilt of sin? I want you to know that is the greatest knowledge that anyone could ever come to know and to believe with all of their hearts. That is what all men, women, boys and girls everywhere are called to do. We are called to believe. We are called to exhibit faith. We are called to trust in the truth of what the scriptures reveal about Jesus and why he came. My question for you simply is, have you done that? And if not, won't you do that today? Listen, right where you are, you can pray this prayer. You can say, God, I admit that I am a sinner. I know that you that I have done wrong and I know that I cannot save myself. But I believe that Jesus Christ has come to this earth to live a perfect, sinless, holy life. And I believe that he came to die for my sins so that I might have forgiveness of my sins. So I ask you to save me because of what Jesus has done. And I believe Jesus died for my sins and I want him to be Lord of my life. Listen, if you prayed that prayer from your heart, I want you to know that your life today and your eternity forever will be changed. And what I hope that you will do is that you will reach out to us. Ted gave the number out earlier. It should appear again for you right now on your screen. I hope you'll call us and that you'll contact us and let us know that you prayed that prayer. And I promise you, someone will be back in touch with you because we want to pray with you. We want you to know what the next steps in following the Lord Jesus are. You can use the digital response card that's also available there to tell us more about yourself and we will be back in touch with you. If you are a believer... If you know the things that Jesus has revealed in the scriptures, then let me conclude today by asking you, what are you going to do about it? What will your response be? Will you ask the Lord to reveal areas of your life that need to be cleansed? Will you willingly put your dirty feet into the hands of the master who desires to wash you and to cleanse you? Will you seek to serve him humbly, sacrificially, selflessly by taking the gospel to others? Brothers and sisters, the Lord has loved us utterly by serving us. 
by sacrificing himself in our place. And therefore, our only hope is to receive his love. And the only proper response for us is to live our lives in selfless service and in purposeful sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is our first lesson from the upper room. And it is God's word for God's people. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. It truly is deep and allows us to ponder so many deep things about who you are and about who we are. And I pray today that we will contemplate those two questions. What did you know and what did you do? And that we will also contemplate those two questions about our own lives. What do I know? And what does my knowledge of what I know, what is it compelling me to do? I pray that your Holy Spirit will be given the the ability to move in the lives of people all across our region, all across our country, all across our world as they come into contact with the truth of the gospel. I pray that as that occurs, that when that conviction comes, that there would be it would be met with humility and a recognition that you are God and that you love us with a love that is unfathomable. I pray that there would be a confession of sin and a repentance of that sin. Father, I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives even now in the midst of situations and circumstances that quite frankly, none of us saw coming, few of us like. Lord, I know that you are doing a great work. And so because you are God and because you are sovereign, we submit to your sovereignty and we ask for you to accomplish anything and everything you want through this set of circumstances and through our lives. And we praise you because you are an awesome, mighty, saving God. I ask all of these things and I give you all the glory in Christ's holy name. Amen.